Let's take up our Bibles and read it, the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 18. We continue our series on the book of Matthew. And so at chapter 18, we're going to begin at verse 15 through verse 20, continuing, and that will be our text Jesus is speaking here to disciples, to all of us, and he's speaking to us tonight. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Thus far we read this passage, and it brings us to the sobering truth that Wherever two or more are gathered, it can be hard to get along. And worse, we can even sin against each other. In our homes, in any gathering, in the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever and wherever two or more are gathered together, it can be hard. And sometimes we think impossible. You ever had such an experience? among brothers and sisters and churches and churches uh, of not too distant a past. Jesus writes here with regard to his people that they might deal with sin in a proper way and might deal with it in a better way than they have been. He's always seeking to disciple us and to cause us to grow. And Jesus would speak to us tonight and remind us that this passage here, written 2,000 years ago, is for us today. This is one of those abused passages, ignored passages, neglected passages, but We neglect Jesus' words to our shame and to our falling away. And any church that neglects this passage and her members neglect this passage will surely be hurt and there will not be Christ in the midst of them but the devil. It's that serious. But we can also look forward to and understand that where this passage is sought to be our guide for reconciling with one another, there Christ is in the midst of 
those people, those reconcilers. And so I want to consider what we have been considering, the, the question of the apostles, who is the greatest that occasioned all of these ethical instructions in Matthew 18. And we want to consider who is the greatest, and that would be the reconcilers. For those involved in the work of Matthew 18 are those who seek reconciliation, whether it's individuals, witnesses, or the church. And so we want to consider two in conflict, and then others brought into the midst, even in the, even the church brought into the conflict. But finally, and especially all along, we want to consider the great one in the midst, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we consider who is the greatest, the reconcilers. Now about this conflict and the arena of conflict that the church can become, families can become, and what is a shame to the name of Jesus. We've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with this passage in order to deal with sin. Jesus deals forthrightly with sin, and he wants us to deal forthrightly, but very gently and righteously and honorably with sin. As he says here, this has to do with brothers sinning against brothers and sisters sinning against sinners, and this in the church of Jesus Christ. Anyone who confesses Christ is, is meant here, and any group of believers who confess Christ together is meant here. Now, what Jesus is doing, let's remind ourselves in this whole context, is answering the question that the disciples had as they were traveling with Jesus, who's the greatest? Now, this is a, a strange question and really bespoke pride on the part of the disciples. They were arguing amongst themselves who could be the top dog, the top disciple. Jesus really rebukes them by bringing a little child into their midst and saying, you got to be like a little child. And it's not about who's going to be the king of the hill or the king of your rock pile or the sandbox. It's about King Jesus. That's what he's been tenderly and wisely pointing them to. We ought to love one another and not sin one another. And if there be sin, so is the application to this section of Matthew 18's book of ethics. If that's the case, we ought to be honorable and loving and persistent and personal in dealing with it to show off who is the true great one in the church. That's Jesus. Jesus, very humbly and self-effacing sort of way, is pointing to himself as he points the disciples away from themselves and their ego. So, at bottom is this concern, and it ought to be our concern in conflict, to show off Christ's righteousness, his mercy, his seeking to cover sins, and so it's not about ourselves. I don't know about you, if I'm ever sinned against, I hear that people have been talking or something about this or that or the other thing about me and my parenting and my ministry, whatever, that can hurt, especially when you thought this person was on your side, was a real like-minded brother and who held your back, as it were. And so it can be my temptation to lash out, 
and to discard that brother and in, in so many words and slanderous gossip. And, and so this can happen to all of us, I suspect, you think? We have a problem when other people attack our name and attack our reputation. And so Jesus is dealing this, and he wants us to, to see right away but that it's not about your rights, not about your greatness. It's about you being as a little child, humble and dependent and God-honoring, and about your serving the great Jesus, who is the Savior and Lord of the church. He's getting at this in this entire chapter. He loves the children, and he wants us not to put stumbling blocks before children. When children are lost, and that is also children of God are lost, he wants us to leave the 99 and go after that. And also here, he wants the little children of God, all of us, brothers and sisters in the family of God, to treat each other righteously and kindly with regard to the sin problem. So, this is what is being dealt with here. And Jesus says there's a way of dealing here with sin, and you've got to follow this. So if a brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother If he will not hear you, take with you two more or one more witnesses. And if not, you go to the church, to the representatives of the church. You see, this is to be a very, very careful procedure that we follow. But now before that, unless we be caught up in Matthew 18 as as if that was the be-all and end-all, I want to suggest to you that in this broken world, we need to enter the forum of congregational life as as helped as we can in the home with dealing with difficulties. So I say to my boys, and I've said to my daughter and all of us together, if you can handle conflict around the kitchen table, you can handle anything. If you can handle your mom and dad and our dad jokes and your your mother and all of this and, and then sisters and brothers and all of your differences of opinions, then and there when you're growing up, I dare say you can handle any other person. If you're real there, that's where you're enabled by God, even if you have one child or even no children, husbands and wives talking and communicating and hearing each other. Then you can deal with others. This is the the principle of priorities, where God deals with us first. So if the hearts are right, when there's two gathered together, there's Jesus. He's speaking to us in the differences of life. And so that we make something of it or we make nothing of it. We look over, overlook certain things, but we deal honestly with things that cannot be looked over right then and there. In the banter even, which for a Christian ought to be banter for a view, so that the other guy with whom we're kidding and, and they with us 
doesn't take himself so seriously. There's a godly purpose of, of humor and even putting out um, an opinion that might sound ridiculous so that you can talk about things. That's communication. That's life. That's putting mom and dad in their place or sons in their place who are rather prone to be um, full of ego and so on. It's all in a good way. It's all in the privacy of the home relationships and so on. But so that Matthew 18 cannot take the place of a brokenness in communication that, or of a, a neverness that was never there in a marriage or in a family. It was just never there. We never talked about things. I know in my home we never talked about religion, politics, or sex. We never really talked about anything that was real. It was just superficial. We didn't know how to talk about things above because we were not a family that was a Christian home. But Jesus here is presuming upon the fact that there's homes that are saved and, and brothers who are made brothers and sisters in the way of God saving us and our children. So, now... When we deal with others, we deal with them in a loving way. That's the first thing. I'm just going to throw out some points here and some principles. And so that we remember that, that main thing about the greatness of Jesus here. Not about our great ability to discover sin, to sniff it out, and then to win an argument but about the greatness of Jesus, the great reconcile of the church. We love. That's why we, keep, uh, we seek to keep the sin private. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's a privacy that's very important here. That means that the first thing or the second thing, or if we're frustrated with the brother, um, that thing doesn't mean that we then go to gossip and talking about the brother who allegedly has sinned against us, nor does it go to, to that, so that we, we slander. That's injustice. Even if it's true, there's something about the honor of a person's reputation that's, that's very important. This is to do with the brother who sins against us, it may be, we shouldn't be legalistic about this, it may also be if your brother sins and it's not directly against you. It could be just a sin in the church or sin at the church picnic and whatever, and, that, and you notice this, and you're feeling compelled of God to confront the brother about it, even though, again, it wasn't directly against you. We're not to slavishly interpret this as if this is the final word about dealing with any sin whatsoever. But the point of privacy is, is very, concern, uh, very concerning. We must keep this quiet. And we can't just say, well, I'll talk to this person and surely they won't say anything. And, but then you find out that they've talked to the other person and the other person... And, Pretty soon it seems like a conspiracy, and if the other person who really sinned against you finds out about it, that shuts out almost the way of reconciliation or it makes it all the more difficult. So it's righteous and loving, and 
And the Bible is always concerned about that, even in the Old Testament. Uh, some people think that the Old Testament was just this harsh thing. But Leviticus 19 and verse 15 and following, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So love is required here in this, in this way of reconciliation. Jesus' love. And it's a love, you see, not first of all, and a righteousness that you're following. You want to do what's right. It's not, first of all, because that person has sinned against you, but because the person has sinned against God. All sin is, first of all, against God who made the laws and the commandments. And so it's his reputation that's at stake, and that's why we should be so zealous and, and vigilant in keeping ourselves from sin and, and, and dealing with sin biblically and in this way of going to the brother. And again, this is Jesus in the midst very, very important. You see, we don't want it to be the case that when we sin against one another or somebody has sinned against us and we try to deal with it, it's all about manhandling one another, manhandling and, and violating this whole idea of the sovereignty of God and he's the Lord we just take over. How dare they sin against me, and so on, or he sins against me, or sins against my wife. We want Jesus to be shown here as the one who handles the situation. He's handling it even through us. This is the point of Matthew 18. The greatest in your midst, even though you might have missed it, is Jesus. Jesus, the Savior and the Lord. Jesus, the reconciler through his blood of sinners and who is the one also who's there in the reconciling of sinners to themselves in the body of Christ. So you want to show off Jesus? Love like he does. And don't manhandle one another and take advantage of one another and so on. And go righteously and truthfully. This, of course, means we must pray and I believe that's the connection between uh, the end of Matthew 18's, the chapter we read, or the part we read, where Jesus is talking about agreement on earth concerning anything they ask and people uh, and being heard of the Father in heaven. Prayer is the process. Prayer is the thing in which we must engage if we are to be reconciled and to discern the truth and, and win a brother or sister or be won by a brother or sister through their words, prayer. This, you see, means we recognize we're just little ones. We're just dependent. We need God. We're not here as, as the great experts on what righteousness is or the great lovers and everybody should learn with us from us. But God is, so we ask him. And one thing we ask for, of course, is the Holy Spirit of Christ. In fact, in Galatians 6, here's what we read. 
Galatians 6 and, and verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and you so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is brought out here in Galatians because you must be a spiritual man or woman to engage in the reconciling work of Jesus in the church and him on your behalf. And so this is what we need to remember here. It's so easy to judge one another when we come to one another in the wrong sense. Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, it applies here. We have to be those who are humble and we come to the brother who is sinned against us and remind him that it's sin against God and that we're just sinners. And then you see we're going to that place called Calvary, the cross. And we're not just going to the coffee shop or going to our house or going to my study and I'm going to read all the books to him and read out loud to him so they know how bad they are and how good I am. We're going to this place where sinners are nothing but those who are sinners. And God is everything. And God is the complete Savior. And when you go there with another one who goes there and Jesus is in the midst, that's how this works. And God works through this process here, this spiritual process. It's all so that we don't go off half-cocked, put it that way. But we go to the cross and we're completely submersed in the gospel. Now, another practical point. Jesus speaks here as if there's just no exception to this rule. And every time a brother sins against us in whatever way, we must tell him his fault between him and us alone. But surely Jesus isn't referring to all sorts of sins always. Sometimes we overlook sins in the sense that we just bear long with them. Not that we're sweeping under the rug, but maybe he lashes out or she lashes out. It's an indiscretion, as we call it. And we bear long with that brother, that comment, whatever, because we know that's really not them, and we see that they know that too. And they're ashamed of their remark. So does it need a formal rebuke? No, it could just be that you are there quietly smiling in peace with regard to that comment and you're not going to let it get you and that person is humbled. It could be, it could be. Uh, so on the other hand, we're, we're not to, told to wait for the greatest of offenses before we go to a brother. So there's liberty here for our understanding. When is the time that we ought to go to a brother. What's the occasion? But here's something that's, that's not debatable. We must take the initiative. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't you wait for your brother to come crawling for mercy. So much is this the case that even if it's the other way around, Say your brother has something against you. 
Jesus in Matthew 5 says, now you drop whatever you're doing, even if you're worshiping in the church. And if your brother has something against you, you go to him too. So whether you sinned against or whether you sinned against your brother, you have the responsibility to go to the brother. It's that important that we be reconciled. We are not to wait. Even if we're worshiping, we should go to the brother and make it right. Now, I said before that there's always the beginning that's such a great advantage for those in the covenant community. Homes where the people talk. And they're not like ships in the night, grab a, grab a, a sandwich and then go off and do work. No, they take time to talk. Do those homes with the advantage of the covenant relationship of God and his people. So that's underlying all of this. And there's a kind of brokenness and, a, and almost an impossibility of Matthew 18 ever working if people don't know how to get along with each other. Because when they go to a brother, they're going to mess it up and they're going to be those who are proud and righteous over much and all these things can be a problem in the whole process of Matthew 18 simply because we haven't learned the piety of getting along with people from early on. But before even the relationship thing, beloved, and the breaking of it maybe or the non-existence of it in the home, This all is so very important that we do as those who are true children of God. In other words, when you are told here and I am, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell tell him his fault. You have to be acting as a child of God. And You have to be humble enough to be sinned against virtuously. Understand that? There's virtue when you're going to this brother, and that's involving you're being sinned against virtuously. Like Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, committed his way to the Father. So us. We're not seeking to lash out here and to add to the sin against us, allegedly, more sin. But then, if someone comes to you and they say, I've got a problem with you, you sin, and so on, you have to be ready to receive an accusation virtuously. How are we doing there? Are you the kind that can be sinned against virtuously? That is, can you take it in a good way? Are you the kind to receive an accusation with bravado and self-defense and up go the walls? Or can you be humble and think to yourself, you know, it's just possible that I might sin against people. Yeah, All this is learned at the school of Jesus 
where you each hear the word of God preached every Lord's Day together. You know what happens here? God's glory is magnified in our declaring his word revealed in his son. You know what happens here? You don't get the glory. I don't get the glory. We're all made to understand that we're just little, we're just little, little kids of God. Big only in this, our sin and in our need of grace. This is all prior to and involved in this thing called, oh, I'm offended and so on. You've heard the preaching of the gospel. And you realize what the Reformed faith is all about. Salvation by grace alone. And not of your works and not because you're so much better than somebody else. And all this is private. To preserve the reputation of the sinner and not to exacerbate a problem by spreading it around foolishly, spreading lies around maybe foolishly, or the truth maliciously. Privacy. I do want to say this, though, in light of current debate among certain churches, even Reformed and Presbyterian, about this whole matter of dealing with sin and especially abuse. In abusive situations defined as somebody in power taking advantage of their position or their power and abusing sexually or physically or emotionally someone else, it's not always proper or even wise for the abused person, maybe it's a wife, little child, to go to the person who sinned against them, maybe for a long time. These are hard and difficult situations. And the church has been ravished by abusers in the pulpit and in the study and homes that have had abusive fathers or mothers, husbands or wives. What do you do? Oh, beloved, in those instances, privacy is not the paramount thing. But dealing with the sin and preventing the hurt and dealing with the hurt is the paramount thing. The case as well of public sin of an office bearer. It's not the case that you need to go, say, to a minister privately because it's a public sin, it's a public office. And so you go to the elders, though that requires two or three witnesses, and and that's my second point, when others are to be taken into this process. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's the end of it. And it better be the end of it. You don't bring it up again. You've gained your brother. 
But if he will not hear, it's not the end of it. You take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, what about these witnesses? The people brought into the process to help the reconciliation effort that this process is. Witnesses are there to verify the accusation of the one sinner against the one who sinned against him. But perhaps, and witnesses take heed here, perhaps it may be defined that the accuser who said that this guy sinned against him is wrong. And as a witness, you want to be objective and not just, well, it's my brother or sister and maybe in the same family and therefore he's got to be right. No, you take the side of truth. And this can be any faithful adult Christian uh, man or woman of integrity that you take along, but they have to be those who are concerned for truth and to establish truth and to verify truth, even if the one who called you to be a witness is is the one in the wrong, or at least partly in in the wrong. This is a biblical principle, once again, and we have this in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15 and following. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. One's not enough. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Truth is so hard to come by, especially when there's sin and when there's hurt. We sometimes need witnesses, one or two. And it doesn't say three or four or or everybody else that we can gather who would be on our side. Just one or two, as few as possible. So that at this point even, the sin can be covered and its publicity not established. This is need for, uh, there is a need for this so that there can be truth established. In fact, it's required in the case of office bearers. 1 Timothy 5 tells us, against an elder, receive not an accusation except in the mouth of witnesses, two or three witnesses. The office is that important. But it's important for wisdom, objectivity, to ensure humility, to ensure justice. We can easily be led astray, you see, by the first person who comes and says, here's what happened, and you say, oh, what a terrible thing. But then when you go to verify, you find out there's more to the story. And that's the important matter in this whole thing. More to the story, what is the truth of the matter? How can we resolve this in the light of the word of God? And then, if that doesn't work, you go to the church. And the church here, the ecclesia, is obviously the representatives of the church. Some people, I suppose, would say, well, tell it to the church. That means just blab it all around. Whatever you want to do, anybody in the church and maybe in the local church down the street or on the airwaves, as we can do that on Facebook, tell it to everybody high and low that this one has sinned against you, and they're not listening to two or three people that I brought along, and no, you don't do that. There's an honor here about this process and a preservation of the dignity 
of the people of God and of the church now of Jesus Christ that we're, we're hearing should be brought into this. Representatives of the church, that would be elders and the pastor, the consistory. It's important here, very, very important. The church is involved in church discipline. And not just two or three years after you've started to work on this privately and then you bring the church on later on, but when it needs to happen. Very important for the honor not just of ourselves and reputation and and our families and so on, but for the honor of the officers of Christ in the church of Jesus Christ. Very important because, you see, to the church is given the keys of the kingdom. And that's what uh, Jesus says here will be exercised if the person refuses even to hear the church. He's cast out of the church. And that's a process itself. In the Reformed churches, it's a, it's a rather long process. It involves the classes. It's so serious because when the church pronounces this one to be like a heathen and a tax collector, it's saying that this one is not in the kingdom. And Jesus mentions this in Matthew 16. It's called binding on earth the things that um, need to be bound, closing the door of the church to the ungodly who refuse to repent, but opening it, of course, to those who repent and are saved by grace just like we are. So this is all what's going on, now the outcome. Now, when we know the one in the midst, and I don't want to leave you with this to encourage you, Negatively, I want to say that if this process isn't followed, it is disaster for a church. There is such prob- there are such problems when Matthew 18 doesn't even exist. I trust, beloved, that you are sensitive to sin enough that you want to deal with it right. You want to go to brothers and sisters and deal with it right. And you want to follow Matthew 18. You want to show off Christ. Places where this isn't followed, where people aren't sensitive to sin, they don't care so much about it, they just overlook it and so on. There's a little leaven that takes hold in the church. Sinners are allowed to exist not only, but even to thrive and even to take advantage of people. And what happens by and by is that the church loses its mark of church discipline. One of the three marks of the Church of Jesus Christ, according to the Belgian Confession. We lose our regard for holiness when people, individuals themselves, aren't taking sin seriously. Beloved, there's two things that we desire of you from this pulpit. Do you take Jesus seriously? and then you take sin seriously. You can't have one without the other this side of heaven when all that will be is taking Jesus seriously in the joy of heaven. This is all about that. So Jesus is in the midst of the church. Thankfully, when Jesus, in the midst of the church, guides us to this reconciliation process, and sometimes it ends up, the sinner is cast out of the church. Be that as it may, he's in the midst of the church. He's saying he will not abide with those who are, who are rebels against him and who would undermine the, the faith of 
his children in the church. But he's saying, I love those who are reconciled. I love it that this process was followed. This word of God that I commanded my disciples was followed. I I love that. I'm in the midst of that people. And this is the idea when he says, again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Do you know what that means? That means, just as Jesus said in the great commission of Matthew 28, go and disciple the nations, and I will be with you always. I'm in the midst of you. He's saying it here, in the midst of the mess that is the church, in the mess that is when sinners gather together. He says, here's the thing that matters. Where two and three sinners are gathered together, and they're messing up maybe. Nevertheless, When there's this beginning of righteousness and love and this attempt at reconciliation, I'm there. And when there's this gaining of sinners to one another, this agreement, there's a wonderful thing that happens. The word for agreement and agreeing, gathered together and agreeing on earth concerning anything they ask, it's like... A symphony. And that's where we, the Greek word there has, is, is the idea of a symphony, harmony. Two or three are gathered together, especially those who come together in the reconciliation process and they've shaken hands and they've hugged and they've said, we're going to sin no more because we love one another. We've been to the cross. There is people singing the same tune. And they're in the same key. Different instruments But there's this harmony, there's this oneness, there's agreement, and besides, there's there's power there. When people come together and they've been to the cross, they are as never before united, and that's powerful. And it's not about the strength of our own virtue and so on, but it's about the strength and the power of the blood of Jesus covering us both and all of us together. In the Old Testament, it was said that when five would be together, they'd be able to put to flight 100. And then, this is in Leviticus, when there's 100 who are together and they agree on anything in the name of God, there's 10,000 who would flee and be put to flight by the 100 that would gather together. Do you know what that means in the church? That means when we are acting like Christ's representatives, as we ought, in the matter of sin, and Jesus is in the midst, look out, world, there's a great Savior here at Sovereign Grace Church, and there's a great Lord. And this church is a force to contend with? Well, maybe not, but something of heaven, something where The kingdom and the power and the glory of God is known. Something where the people are made willing in the day of the power of God to give themselves to Christ, no matter if their reputation is is on the line, but only so that Jesus' name is exalted in the midst. So here's how you deal with sinners. Here's how we need to go forward. May God bless us in the work of reconciliation. Children of God, 
take courage. The Father is in and among you in the person of the Son, the great Savior. And he will make us to be those who know the power of his own reconciliation. Come together. Come together. Draw near. And God be with you. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless, care for us. Help us to be those who are truly humbled. To have Jesus in our midst, this very real presence, is such a delight, Lord. We love you for that. To know his truth. To know the truth that sets sinners free. To have his spirit. To have his word of promise. What a great thing. Lord, having this, what need we fear? Sinners or death itself, we will not fear. You're in the midst of us, Lord. And you would cause your son's name to be great, even by us, whom we serve now and forever. Amen.